0: Welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gear. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, you're our guest, and we're glad you're here. And if you'd like to let us know, just text the word WELCOME to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just fill that out and tell us about yourself, and you get more information about The Well. Thanks for being with us today. We appreciate you. And today is the first week of a brand new series called The Family Tree, The Denominations of Christianity. So we're learning about the various branches of the Jesus movement over the centuries. And I understand the title may not be the most enticing title in the history of sermon titles so you hear denominations many of us think of arguments and division some of us think of christianity as not so great of a word anymore some of us call ourselves jesus followers because there's this thing called christianity and lots of lots of other movements and politics get lumped in with that And some people aren't comfortable with that word, but what we're doing in this series is we're looking back over the centuries at people who wanted to follow Jesus Christ. Wherever they were at the time, hundreds of years ago, perhaps. And those people were human just like us. And while there were things about life that were different, of course, there were a lot of things that were the same. And they wrestled with questions and doubts and their own spiritual journeys and challenges presented in their times. And they had to do their best to listen to the Spirit of God and do their best within their cultural understandings to figure out how to follow Jesus in their time. And it could be that the next big step in your spiritual journey, if if you're somebody who you're, you're just not sure where you are when it comes to faith and belief and questions and doubts, it could be that the next big step is actually learning perhaps about somebody hundreds of years in the past who had this question, this struggle, this doubt they dealt with And saying, wait a second, I can identify with that person who lived hundreds of years ago, maybe on the other side of the planet. And I had no idea that people were thinking these thoughts in in history. And, And it could be that that's what opens the door for the next big step forward for you in your spiritual life. And so that's the main reason we're doing this series, because we can identify with our spiritual ancestors, people who've gone on before us, who have wrestled with similar things, and we could have some amazing revolutionary aha moments in this series. Now, another reason we're doing this series is, we all know we're living in a divided time, a rancorous time. It could be getting worse. And we can all benefit by understanding each other a little bit better. And so as we talk about these different branches of Christianity, we're not going to critique them. That's not our place to do that. We're going to learn about them, and then we're going to ask, what could I gain from this particular branch of Christianity that can help me grow in my own spiritual life? We're not looking to criticize somebody else. We're looking, what can I gain? What can I learn? How can I grow? And so here are the sermon titles. Today we're talking about Catholics. Then next week we're talking about the Orthodox Church. It could be that next week alone is revolutionary uh, for your faith. And then uh, May 8th, we'll talk about Anglicans and Methodists. That's also Mother's Day. We'll talk about Susanna Wesley, the mother of John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist Church and her influence on his life and her influence on, as, a, as, a, of, as a woman leader uh, in her area. And then on May 15th, Lutherans and Presbyterians. May 22nd, Baptists, Anabaptists, and Pentecostals. And then on May 29th, non-denom- uh, non-denominational Christians, including churches like The Well who want to do uh, the kind of church that, that we're trying to uh, to make happen here, where questions and doubts are welcome. So that's where we're headed in this series. Now, this is a graph of all Christians in the world. Over two billion people on planet Earth uh, call themselves Christians. And here are how the, the percentages break down for each denomination. You can see that over half of all Christians are Catholics. And the next are Pentecostals. If Pentecostalism was one denomination, they would be the second largest group of Christians in the world. After that, the Orthodox Church that we'll discuss next week. And so every week in this series, I'm going to give you three things. Basic facts about that branch of Christianity, the major tenets of their faith, the things they believe. And then third, we're going to ask what we can learn from them and how we can grow in our own spiritual lives. So today we're talking about the largest Christian body in the world, the Catholic Church. The current Pope, Pope Francis, was elected on March 13, 2013, and became one of the most popular people in the world very quickly. People found him warm and and winsome, and you may have things that you disagree with him on, things that you agree with him on, of course, that's, that's okay, and if you're a Protestant, that means you're not a Catholic, so you're not going to agree with everything that we talk about here today, of course. Uh, I'm a Protestant, but... One year in to his election uh, to the papacy, journalists wrote about the Francis effect, that, that attendance in the Catholic Church increased around the world. He, he displayed humility and modesty. He, he wants to serve the poor. He wants to uh, clean up corruption and emphasizes love over political ideology. And I think Francis is probably benefiting all Christians, not just... Catholics, even if there are things we disagree with him about, which of course there are for me and maybe for you. But I see him as somebody who is humble and compassionate and probably a good thing for Christianity all over the world. Now one time a guy visiting the well came up to me after a service and I had mentioned Catholics in the, in the sermon and said something positive. And he thanked me for saying something positive about the Catholic Church because he's visited Protestant churches before that he told me about who bashed Catholics. And he was thankful that, that we didn't do that. And unfortunately, there is a long history of Catholic bias or anti-Catholic bias in the United States. Prohibition in the 1920s was not just about alcohol. Part of the animus the, behind the political coalition that, that passed prohibition came from groups that were anti-immigration, particularly uh, anti-Irish, because they, they thought of Irish Catholics as drunks. And so not only was it a way to deal with alcoholism and and domestic abuse, which needed to be dealt with, but it was also uh, tied to an anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic sentiment. German Lutherans had also been stereotyped that way uh, in the past. And and so uh, that continued in 1960 when, when John F. Kennedy was elected president. He had to give a, a major speech, actually while he was still running for president, assuring the nation that he wouldn't be controlled by the Pope. There was enough anti-Catholic bias in the United States in 1960 that they were scared that the President of the United States might, have this, might be a secret puppet of, of the Pope. It turns out that, that Kennedy was not exactly that, but that's the kind of anti-Catholic bias there was in the 1960s. Now, some people that I know will mistakenly say that uh, there's a difference between Catholics and Christian. Like, well, are you Catholic or are you a Christian? And Catholics are Christians. Everybody as much as Protestants are Christians or any other Christian group. Um, Catholics view Protestants as separated brethren and sisters in Christ. Catholics view Protestants as Christians, and, and Protestants should return the favor to Catholics and recognize that we are brothers and sisters. In Christ, And so if you're a Protestant, you're not going to believe the same things as Catholics. We'll talk about Protestants, but, but there are lots of Protestants who don't really understand the Catholic faith. And we can benefit by understanding it. It doesn't mean that you are agreeing with it, but we can benefit at least by understanding. And, and of course, prejudice is built on not understanding. We, we tend to criticize what, we're, what we don't understand. And so if we understand something better even if we don't agree we can still have an appreciation and have a more peaceful harmonious relationship and and so first i'm going to start with the history of catholicism of course this is in no way exhaustive there's not nearly enough time even in a ryan gear sermon they're not long enough for uh, all of that but here's a brief history of the roman catholic church so it's the largest christian body in the world with over 1.2 billion members catholics represent over half of all christians in the world as we said Uh, Catholicism is also the largest church in Arizona Uh, for those of us who live here in Arizona of course we're online now as well but it's one of the most enduring institutions in the world the Catholic Church is eight times older than the United States Catholic Church has been around for eight times uh, the number of years as the United States Catholic comes from a Greek word Cathalu, which means universal, means according to the whole, it's like the whole body. So the Catholic Church sees itself as the universal church, the church of Jesus all over the world. Catholics view Peter as the first pope. So um, pope means papa, which is Latin for father. And the pope is the leader of the Catholic Church. And Catholics believe that Jesus established the papacy with Peter as the first pope. And they cite Jesus's words in Matthew chapter 16. The leader of the church in Rome is going to be the most influential leader. And over time, the Bishop of Rome became known as the Pope. And so some of the names and the structure within the Catholic Church come from Roman culture. A Roman city hall was called a basilica. Um, Cathedral is Latin, uh, cathedra, which means chair, as in throne. And so the Bishop of Rome sits on the chair, rules from the chair, just as the Roman emperor ruled from his chair, his throne. And when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, from the chair from the throne it means that his teaching his dogma is binding and infallible in faith and morals infallible means true and that catholics should live by it and then uh, pope gregory the great was um, the pope who trans- Was the messiah so Peter is petros in greek and it means rock the rock and so jesus says to the apostle peter your, your, your name is petros the rock and on this rock I will build my church. And, and Catholics interpret that as Jesus building the the church on the apostle Peter. And so that would make Peter the first pope in, in, in a Catholic's view. When I visited uh, Caesarea Philippi in, in January of 2012, I actually picked up a rock from this, from this site where Jesus said this in Matthew as a memento. I'm a church planter. I start new churches. And so you can see why it's meaningful to me that Jesus says on this rock, I will build my church. And so... I got this through customs, thankfully, and this normally sits on the the bookshelf right behind me here, and it's special to me. This is a piece of rock that was there at the time when Jesus spoke these words about how he will build his church. And so Catholics view Peter as the first pope. And then in the first century after Jesus was crucified and, and raised, the bishop of Rome, who was the leader of the church based in the city of Rome, became seen as the most influential leader in the Christian church because Rome was the most influential city. And so it just logically follows that whoever is the leader of the church in Rome is going to be the most influential leader. And over time, the Bishop of Rome became known as the Pope. And so some of the names and the structure within the Catholic church come from Roman culture. A Roman city hall was called a basilica. Um, Cathedral is Latin, uh, cathedra which means chair, as in throne. And so the Bishop of Rome sits on the chair, rules from the chair, just as the Roman emperor ruled from his chair, his throne. And when the Pope speaks ex cathedra from the chair, from the throne, it means that his teaching, his dogma is binding and infallible in faith and morals. Infallible means true and that Catholics should live by it. And then uh, Pope Gregory the Great was um, the Pope who transformed the Catholic Church into what would now be recognizable to us as the Catholic Church in about 550 AD under his leadership of you know, Pope Gregory the Great, he revolutionized worship in the Catholic Church, writing liturgy. Um, there is some question about his influence on worship music. There's a, a form of chant that bears his name. Can you guess what that kind of chant is called, named after Pope Gregory? Gregorian chant and he may or may not have been involved in its use in the Catholic Church but it's named after him and and then in 1054 AD there was a separation that took place within the Catholic Church a thousand years ago and that's only halfway through its history a thousand years back the Catholic Church was split in two with Roman Catholics falling under the authority of the Pope and Eastern Orthodox churches rejecting the authority of the Pope it's called the Great Schism And we'll talk about the Orthodox Church next week. But uh, later in the 1500s, the Protestant Reformation took place, led by a Catholic monk named Martin Luther. And Luther and other leaders protested certain elements of the Catholic Church. So his followers were called Protestants, Protestants. And, And then major reforms were made in the Catholic Church in the 1960s that you probably know about, called the Second Vatican Council or Vatican II they modernized the church in several ways the most famous of which was permitting mass to be said in the language of the people instead of latin only so of course that's not exhaustive that's just a quick out of breath rundown of the history of the catholic church just to just to give us some idea so let's talk about the major distinctives of the catholic church what makes the catholic church what it is. And of course, once again, this isn't exhaustive, but, but just a few things. So, I occasionally house-sit for an old neighbor of mine named Tom in Chandler, and, and he and his wife are semi-retired, and they travel the world, they, they really enjoy their life, and a few months ago, while I was house-sitting for them, I saw a picture of his wife greeting Pope John Paul II. They just had this picture hanging in their hallway, and I thought, wow, you know, that, she's, a, she's a hospital chaplain with Dignity Health here in the area or at least she was at the time. And, and uh, next time I uh, saw Tom, I asked him about it, like, how did your wife meet the Pope? And, and he's like, yeah, it was great. And she took a, a group of, of cognitively delayed students over to Rome to visit uh, the Vatican and, and of course the sites in the city of Rome. And while they were there, somebody said, hey, let's call the Vatican and see if we can meet the Pope. That's positive thinking. That's an optimistic person. So they called the Vatican and, and somebody called back and said, yeah, the Pope says 1 p.m. on Thursday. So uh, Tom's wife, Patty, and, and this group of students got to meet the Pope and, and, and had this amazing experience and this picture taken. And Tom and I occasionally talk about religion. He's a faithful church-going Catholic. He and his wife go to Mass. Um, but they, they don't agree with everything the Catholic Church teaches he kind of made that clear to me we're dev, we're devout Catholics. we go to mass every week, but we don't agree with everything and that speaks to the culture of the Catholic Church. You hear that often the Catholic Church is a big tent when you call yourself the universal church there is there is the realization that this is global it, it transcends cultures it transcends languages and 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 it's diverse so while Yes, there is a pope, and yes, there is a structure and a hierarchy, and there is dogma. At the same time, on the ground, there are a lot of Catholics who may or may not agree with everything their church teaches, but they still understand that they're part of the church. There's, there's a magnanimous big tent mentality within the Catholic church. So even with things that you may or may not agree with about Catholicism, and the same for me, there is this feeling that there is a big tent mentality within the Catholic Church. And so, the most important aspect of the Catholic, uh, Catholic theology and worship is, is the Mass. Uh, they say it's the source and summit of life in the Church. The word Mass comes from the Latin dismissal, at the end of the service, Mass, or the Eucharist, or Communion, or the Lord's Supper, is the central act of worship in the Christian Church, and, and Catholics emphasize its importance Certainly, So Catholics believe that Christ is truly present in the elements of bread and wine in the Mass. So that the Mass is a a representation of the sacrifice of Jesus. And to Catholics, God gives saving grace through the Mass. So to Catholics, when an ordained priest pronounces the words of institution, Catholics believe that the bread and wine are transformed into the body and blood of Christ in essence. Now, of course, in physical appearance, they remain bread and wine, but in essence, they're transformed. And that idea that, of course, that may sound completely foreign to you, but that idea of empirical properties versus essence comes from the philosophy of Aristotle. So this Catholic theology is based on the the philosophy of Aristotle, that there can be a difference between the appearance of something, its physical qualities, and its Essence, And so Catholics view this as a mystery, but the the Mass is vitally important to Catholics because the elements do become the body and blood of Christ, and Christ is present in them for a Catholic. And so you can see why it's so important. Another distinctive of the Catholic Church is Catholics believe in the communion of the saints. Now, the communion of the saints means that the church of, of Jesus Christ is made up of people all over the world and people who have already gone on before us. Uh, all followers of Jesus who have ever lived are a part of the communion of the saints, and Catholics believe in the intercession of the saints. The, and so you can, you can follow the logic, if the saints who have gone on before us are, are present with Jesus, they're in God's presence in heaven, then they can pray for us on our behalf. And so Catholics don't pray to the saints, they pray through the saints in a sense that, will you pray for us, saint? And there's the belief that since the saints are there with God uh, in heaven, that they can pray for us on our behalf. And so once again, if you're a Protestant, you wouldn't, you wouldn't uh, pray through the saints like that, but you can understand why Catholics would believe that you can. Because of the communion of the saints, another distinctive of Roman Catholic uh, theology is purgatory. Um, the idea of purgatory comes from a book uh, in what's called the apocrypha, which is uh, literature from between the testaments—the Old Testament, and the New Testament. The apocrypha is literature about things that happen in between, and Protestants don't have the apocrypha as part of our Bible, but Catholics do. And there's a book in the apocrypha called Second Maccabees about making atonement for the dead so that they might be freed from sin people who have already gone on being freed from sin. And so uh, Catholics believe that purgatory is a place of purging. You can see where that word purgatory comes from, purging. And it's it's an intermediate state after death in which people who are destined for heaven are purified from their sins. And so purgatory prepares people To join God in heaven. They're they're purified by God's love, and it's sometimes called a refining fire, but it's it's not a literal fire, and they're made ready for heaven. It's interesting because maybe you grew up uh, in in an expression, a branch, to use the metaphor for the series correctly, I'm reminding myself, maybe you grew up in a branch of Christianity where you were taught hellfire and brimstone, and Catholics do believe in hell. But at the same time, purgatory is a bit of a release valve. If you were raised in that kind of tradition where there's an intermediate state that somebody could go to and be prepared for heaven. They're not perfect. When they die, they're not perfect, but they can go and be purged. They can be refined and made ready for heaven. There's this interesting connection between Judaism. Jesus was Jewish. All of the early followers of Jesus were Jewish. There's this connection between the uh, purgatory and this rabbinic belief that Jewish rabbis taught, this belief about Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is the word we have in the New Testament that usually gets translated hell. And Jesus speaks about Gehenna. Jesus warns people not to go to Gehenna. Now, it may be revolutionary for you to hear that rabbis don't see Gehenna as an eternal Conscious torment in hell. Rabbis saw Gehenna as a place of purification in the next life, but they saw that the, the maximum amount of time a, pers- a person could spend in Gehenna was maybe 11 or 12 months. They didn't view it as eternal conscious, <laughs> excuse me, torment. It's allergy season, excuse me. And so there is this correlation between the Catholic view of purgatory and what the rabbis believed about. Gehenna. And of course, when we interpret the New Testament, we're asking, what was Jesus thinking? What did he mean by Gehenna? And you can make a strong case that Jesus meant by Gehenna what Jewish rabbis have meant by Gehenna. If, if you want to talk about a revolutionary idea, there are some of us right now hearing this who grew up in that fire and brimstone culture where God is just dangling you by a spider web over the flames of an eternal hell. And you're thinking, wait a second, rabbis didn't see Gehenna as permanent. And there is this correlation between the Catholic view of purgatory. There there are people who have been thinking these thoughts. If you're thinking, man, how how could a good and loving God allow people to burn forever? Now, once again, Catholics believe in hell. But there's this kind of release valve of purgatory, that there's something else that can purify people and help them get ready for heaven. That could be a door that opens. When we talk about the orthodox faith next week, if you think that's something, wait until next week. And it could be that, that one of these things we talk about is the door that opens for you. That just, just kicks that door open, and you're able to see maybe some new hope for your spiritual life when it comes to your questions And doubts. And so, another distinctive, just a couple more of the Roman Catholic Church, is the veneration of Mary. So, Catholics refer to Mary, the mother of Jesus, as Mary the Blessed Virgin Mary, Our Lady, Our Blessed Lady, and as the mother of God. Now, obviously, Mary is the the mother of Jesus, and and we have Mary featured prominently in in the the Christmas stories and and later in episodes of Jesus' life. Her role in salvation has been written about extensively in the Catholic uh, Church. Catholics do not worship Mary uh, Catholics give highest honor to Mary and Catholics will pray to God through Mary as an intercessor pray for us in our time of death and and in the Hail Mary and, and so Mary features prominently in Catholic theology now of course when the priests are all males in the Catholic Church and, and Protestant religion has been male dominated even though women usually actually run the churches actually make the church work. It's usually a man who's in leadership in Protestant churches. There are Protestant churches that don't even permit a woman to preach a sermon. In the Catholic church, there is something to appreciate about viewing Mary as venerated, as special, as as receiving the highest honor. There is something to be said about uh, the feminine being featured so prominently in an expression of christianity and of course you have the celibacy of of male priests this practice and you also have nuns that there is a prominent place even though yes many of us would probably say why can't women be priests but but there is a role of, of a nun and and there are women featured prominently in leadership not in the highest levels of leadership and that's an important distinction to make but as i view catholic Theology and practice, I do see. Wow, there's there's the veneration of Mary, and I understand how that is meaningful to any Catholic. But that there is also uh, an honoring of a feminine figure within Christianity, and I think that's an important distinctive to appreciate. So, once again, that's just a quick overview. That's not even fair. That we just barely barely even uh, scratched the surface, and so. For the rest of the sermon here, I'd like to ask, what can we learn from Catholics? I'm a Protestant, that means I'm not a Catholic. But what can I learn from Catholics? What can we learn from Catholic theology and practice that could be revolutionary even for some of us and could kick down that door so that you can go farther in your spiritual life? Well, just a few things. So first of all, the Catholic Church has a developed and extensive doctrine of social justice. You don't need me to tell you that when you mention Christians in America, there has been such a effusion and a weird hijacking of Christianity in America by, by certain types of politics that when you mention Christians in America, you might assume that all Christians are supposed to vote the same way and have the same views on social issues. That is not true of Catholics. To uh, Catholics... The way we treat our brothers and sisters socially as a collective group has been extremely important for for its entire history. And you see Catholics at work all over the world in social justice movements, even in, in the development of hospitals around the world. Right up the road here, I have Mercy Gilbert, that's part of Dignity Health, which is a, a Catholic hospital network. My youngest son was born at Chandler Regional, which now is a is a is a, is a part of Dignity Health, I believe and you see it in relief organizations and community centers all over the world and in Catholic relief agencies and, and the Catholic doctrine of social justice asserts the dignity and equality of human beings now once again there are groups that are excluded still so we're not pretending everything's rosy and perfect but there is a, a developed doctrine of social justice that does value diversity and it urges societies to address social and economic inequalities that it calls sinful. It encourages love for our brothers and sisters. And, And many of us grew up in churches, or maybe as adults we've been exposed to this kind of Protestant brand of Christianity that is only concerned with people's souls and not their bodies. We want to win souls to Christ. We want to win souls so they can go to heaven someday. So you have this disembodied, form of Christianity that's about people's souls, but not their bodies. But in the Catholic faith, there is a social component to faith. And the last church uh, that I served in in Ohio before my wife and I moved here uh, in 2012, we had an informal partnership with the local Catholic parish to provide services to the community. So the church I was in had a a free store where you could come and shop, and it didn't cost anything, clothing and items like that. And then St. Matthew's Catholic Church across town operated the food pantry. We sent people to them, and they sent people to us. And, and one day, a couple of guys from St. Matthew's came over um, to the, the church building where I served, and, and they were helping a family who had had a house fire. And they lost everything in this house fire. And these guys from St. Matthew's came over to get clothing for the family, and, and they were uh, donating furniture and other things and, and food. And that was a Catholic church and a Protestant church working together to help people in need. just a cool experience and to see their their faith in action so a concern for social justice next i mean once again for some this may be a a mind-blowing experience and an an aha moment fundamentalist christians in america have had a long-standing conflict with modern science especially with evolution obviously now some with vaccines and climate change now the catholic church had a difficult history with science in the time of copernicus and galileo and what happened there was wrong and the catholic church learned from that and right now catholics see faith and science as completely compatible catholic theology sees faith and evolution as compatible Some of the major scientific advancements have been made by Catholics. Gregor Mendel was a monk who was a pioneer in genetics. If you don't know this, get ready for this one. The theory of the Big Bang and the origin of the universe was proposed by a Catholic priest. For some of us, that's just like, what? We would never imagine a a Christian making a scientific... Discovery or or forming a scientific theory like that, compatible with the theory of evolution, being a Christian. But his name was George Lemaitre. He was a a contemporary of Einstein, and he proposed the theory of the Big Bang, a Catholic priest. And so Catholics have an appreciation for science. Once again, if you grew up in the kind of branch of Christianity that I did, that is just mind-blowing to you that you can be a Christian and, and see faith and modern science, including evolution, as compatible. And that's the official teaching of the Catholic Church. Another thing that, that I have gained personally, and that I think all of us can gain from, from the Catholic faith, is the Roman Catholic Church has a long tradition of a reverence for a big God, the majesty of God and for reflection and embracing mystery and spiritual growth. A sense of the awesomeness of God. The bigness of God. The mystery of life. And about seeing our place within that and contemplating that and and being serious about our own spiritual lives and, and growing in our spiritual lives. Once again, those of us who come from some branches of the Protestant faith, there's this idea that that my relationship with Jesus is kind of like me and my little pal Jesus. That, and I believe in a personal relationship with Christ. And I believe in the closeness of Christ. I believe in all those things. And at the same time, if that's all we talk about, we can domesticate Jesus. There are times I've heard people talk about Jesus that almost seemed, it made Jesus seem like a pet. Like where the, the, the majesty of Jesus, that Jesus is, is God to a Christian is lost. There are times in life when you need a big God. There are times in life when you face a crisis and, and the greatness and the majesty of God becomes important to you. There is, a, there is a, a sense in which we need a big God to see ourselves rightly. I had a conversation uh, with a friend of mine this morning actually who said that he feels close to God. He, he wouldn't necessarily call himself a Christian. He feels close to God or the universe or the force of what, or whatever, you know, whatever he kind of calls it when he's in the mountains. So he mountain bikes through the superstitions and, and he goes to like mountain bike races and and he feels close to God in, in nature, which Christians, of course, believe is the creation of God. And I said, yeah, man, I mean, like the man, those canyons, they're like they're like natural God made cathedrals you know, to, to a person of faith. And and we had this cool conversation about that. But one of the things we talked about was you see yourself rightly when you stand up against the superstition mountains here, which is is a massive mountain range with this, this sheer cliff face just east of, of where I live. And man, you get a sense of your own place in the universe when you when you stand up against the superstition mountains and you look up and especially at night and you see the stars in the sky and you're like, wow. There's a sense of awe and wonder Catholics do a good job of seeing God with awe and wonder and embracing the, the bigness and the mystery of life. And and that's even built into Catholic architecture. Throughout my life, when I have wanted to get away and reflect, I would gravitate towards cathedrals or basilicas or, ret- or retreat centers. I served in a church, again, back in Ohio, and there was a, a basilica close to where I lived and and. I don't know how many times I went there to reflect and pray. I would go at 2 a.m. I was single at the time. I would go to this basilica, this beautiful, expansive uh, place of worship. that could see 1,000 or 1,500 people, and I would be the only person there. And, and the candles would be burning, and you would smell the incense. And I would sit in one of the pews, and I would pray as a Protestant guy, not a Catholic, but I just found it to be a place where, man... I can can connect with something bigger here. And there there was a basilica, well, the one that I went to, I I went to some other places too, actually, but the one that I was just talking about called um, Our Lady of Consolation. And it was believed that, that there was a statue of Mary there that had healing properties. So for, I think, 150 years, people have come there from all over the world making religious pilgrimages to that basilica, Our Lady of Consolation, seeking healing from physical ailments and, and other types of ailments and, and there was a statue of Mary there and there was a, a an en- an engraved plaque underneath that statue that said see if there is any suffering like unto my suffering and it was meant to console people that people are, who are hurting can come and find consolation thinking about Mary's suffering watching her son die on the cross so we just celebrated Easter and, and, and people who are hurting could identify with Mary. And it was just a place of prayerful reflection and beauty and contemplation and and reverence and and, and healing. And so um, there's a retreat center in Scottsdale called the Franciscan Renewal Center. It's just north of Camelback Mountain. I've been there so many times just to reflect, just to pray. There are prayer gardens all over the, the, the grounds. And there's one place in particular I visited called the Healing Garden. And they since have built a building where the Healing Garden was that kind of I kind of hurt my heart to see that. It was such a special place. But there was a swing between two citrus trees in the healing garden. And I don't know how many times I sat on that swing. And there were ideas formed in me sitting on that swing about pastoring a church that welcomes everybody. And it could be a place of healing and peace and joy and community and allowing people to be themselves and express their questions and doubts and their imperfections and, and and we don't have to pretend and we can do our best to, to support each other and follow Jesus. A lot of that stuff was conceived sitting on that swing. It's a special place for me. I actually lived in Tempe from 2005 to 2007 and then moved back to Ohio for five years, got married, had our first son, and Hannah and I moved back here in 2012. and. Um, Hannah and I met in college, we kind of lost touch, and then we got back in touch in 2006 through MySpace. Anybody? remember MySpace? (laughs) That dates us. And so back when we got in touch around 2007, I would sit on the swing with my cell phone, and it it would be like in November, freezing back in Ohio where Hannah still lived, and I would say, yeah, it's like 75 degrees and sunny here, and I'm sitting between two orange trees. That was my way of trying to get her to move out here so we could you know date and get more serious and she was pretty much like yeah put a put a ring on my finger and that'll happen so you know how that turned out i moved back to ohio for five years and then we came back out here so it was just a special place for me this catholic retreat center and then you think about um, catholics uh, putting such an emphasis on spiritual development in retreat centers and spiritual direction mother Teresa. Um, her story shocked the world. After, after her death, there was a memoir released, and, and it was a collection of her letters. It was released as a book called Come Be My Light. And, and she was made a saint in 2015, but this book was released that contained her letters expressing her own spiritual journey, and it shocked the world. Because for years, Mother Teresa experienced what you, what you could call a dark night of the soul that she had lots of questions and doubts and loneliness and she wondered for for years where is god think about her serving the poorest of the poor in in seeing this misery in the world and and she wrote freely about her letter about her own spiritual life and she wrote these letters to her spiritual director somebody who who she could be honest with and who could who could give spiritual direction to mother teresa i mean think about that and, for example, she wrote, In my soul I feel just that terrible pain of loss of God not wanting me, of God not being God, of God not really existing. She's a saint now. Is that shocking? But th- That's part of, of the culture of spiritual reflection and contemplation and honesty with, within many Catholic movements over the centuries. To be able to freely express that to your spiritual director, somebody who has spiritual guidance, you know, in 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 authority in in your life, to be able to say that to them honestly. Once again, there are many of us who grew up in, in 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 church cultures where that would just you'd get kicked out the the back door for saying something like that. But it's it's something that we can learn, I think, that I can learn from Catholic spirituality and. And of course, you can see though in her writings how she took that sense of loneliness and that that darkness and she used that to identify with Jesus on the cross when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22. And she let that darkness help her to identify with the poor who were abandoned by the world. And so it wasn't just, she wasn't complaining here. This was a part of her spiritual life that at times she lamented, but she also embraced and it gave her meaning. For her life, I mean, this is this is gut level, honest stuff, and it comes from a culture of valuing spiritual contemplation and spiritual growth. Man, that's great. I can I can benefit from that. And so, these are just a few things as we look at the largest body of, of Christians in the world that we can learn, and I think we can gain. So I. I wonder where where are you right now in your spiritual life? We just came out of a series called Faith uh, After Doubt: Why Your Beliefs Stop Working and, and um, What to Do About It. And we talked about how there are different stages of spiritual development. And where are you? You know, are you hurting right now? Are you in a place where you feel stuck? Are you are you really being challenged? Are you are you discouraged? Are you are you questioning and just kind of deconstructing everything and and you're trying to figure out if, there, if, if there's anything worth holding on to, or should you chuck it all? Are you, are you angry? And if you're honest, I mean, I've been there. When things happen in our lives, are you angry at God? Are you angry at, at other people who are Christians, right? I mean, there are so many things happening uh, in, in our culture right now where we, it's easy to see people who are, who are self-professing Christians and are doing things that we think is horrific. And you know, where are you in your spiritual life? How could some of these things help? We talk about the bigness of God, the majesty of God. There's this old song, He's got the whole world in His hands. We live in a time of fear and anxiety and division. What does the bigness, the majesty of God over the centuries say to us in a a divided, difficult time, in a time of uncertainty where we don't know what's going to happen? in the future the same God who was there 2,000 years ago when Jesus was walking around and the same God who was with 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 Abraham and the same God who has been with Catholic Christians of course all Christians been in all people all over the world but you see what I'm saying for eight times longer than the United States has been a country what does the bigness of God communicate in such an anxious fearful time God's got the whole world in his hands and we don't have to fear we don't have to we don't have to live with anxiety there, there's power to be tapped into there's a way forward there's hope there's hope there's Easter hope that we talked about last week and then we talk about just the the intellectual questions that people have and and the the science and faith can be compatible you don't have to pick being a Christian, or believing in science. They can be compatible. And then spiritual growth, just an emphasis on growing. And it's okay to be honest, like Mother Teresa, my goodness, saying that she felt distant from God or wondered if God existed. And how does that speak to your spiritual life and where you are? Can you identify with that? Can, is that helpful to know there, there is a branch of Christianity in, in which spiritual honesty like this is embraced? It can be healing and so once again as we discuss all of these branches of christianity we're not going to agree with everything we're not but we're also not going to critique and focus on what we could critique but we're gonna we're gonna ask what can i learn and how can i grow and and i think there's so much here that we can learn and grow from and so that's the catholic church that's the beginning of our series um, the family tree I want to invite you to pray with me. Oh God, thank You for the work that You have done as a big God over the centuries, all over the world, in every culture, in every language, in every people group, calling people to Yourself, calling people by Your Spirit, calling us forward to goodness and beauty and, and reverence and and the dignity of, of all people and, There is no perfect institution, there is no perfect church. As we learn about Catholics, there is so much that we can understand and there is so much we can appreciate. God, right now I'm thinking of people who do feel a sense of pain, of separateness, of distance, of anger toward You, like Mother Teresa expressed. We need an atmosphere of honesty where we don't have to pretend. And like Mother Teresa, we can write in a letter to a spiritual director or somebody who cares for us, this is how I feel and it's gut level honest. Oh, how freeing and healing that can be. And then to say, you know what? I don't have to pretend that I have a different experience, but I can use my experience and I can let God work through my experience like Mother Teresa did. That her her distance, her loneliness, she used that to help her identify with Jesus and identify with the poor. And there's so much power. There's so much spiritual power there in that honesty. We pray for for the healing that comes through that. We pray for that honest friend that Brian McLaren talked about in his interview a couple of weeks ago. That one person. Friends no matter what, he called them, that we can share with. Or maybe it is finding a place of beauty and reflection and making time to value our spiritual lives and, and really listen to that inner voice and listen to your spirit. And get in touch with you and get in touch with what really matters, see ourselves in perspective, whether it's it's on a mountain or or and you know, there was a farmer one time in Ohio that told me he never felt closer to God than when he was on the back of a tractor, or whether it's a cathedral, or whether it's with friends or family or children and people we love, wherever it is, that we can make s- space and time for reflection and contemplation and prayer. And for those of us for whom intellectual questions have have really been a barrier between us and our faith, may we be encouraged by one branch of Christianity no longer having a problem with faith and science. And to know that thinking people can embrace faith and you can be intellectually honest. We don't talk about God the way we talk about gravity as we talked about in the last series. We hold some things with an open hand metaphysical things that we can't be certain about, but there are things we are certain about, the need for love. And we thank you, Jesus, that you are building your church all over the world, no matter what the label is, and that you call people all over the world, and it's a big tent, and we get to be a part of it. In Jesus' name, and everybody said,